This is hell. Live from the attic of the dilapidated house your parents strictly forbade you to break into, this is Limbo. Obviously, I am not Chuck, nor do I really wish I was. Uh, not with his demon being in his butt and all, anyway. Um, yeah, Chuck is still in recovery mode. Uh, which leaves us behind the scenes monkeys in charge of things here at This Is Hell. Um, obviously, we all hope that he gets better soon uh, and then gets back to the studio, strictly in that order. Uh, we all miss his voice and wisdoms, but all of us working on the show keep telling him no coming back t to work without you being all better all the time. This is not an insurrection. This is not a revolt. This is, well, limbo. Producing today's show is, well, me, Sebastian. So what's new with me? I've spent the past month getting ready to take over Alex's position and uh, started some long overdue cleanup efforts of our various online presences. And that process is still ongoing. I am still working on uploading more back catalog interviews to our much neglected YouTube page, for one. Go to youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996 for our channel. Uh, there is more to come there in the future. We are also in the process of setting up a Discord server where we can then, once it's up and running, take your answers to the week's question from hell have you suggest guests to us and just hang out and talk to fellow fans of God's favorite radio show, as Chuck would say. And uh, if you disagree with this sentiment, you still have to prove him wrong, but take it up with him. I, I'm, I'm just the messenger here. Apropos, uh, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell, Sebastian, is uh, what you got going on inside you right now? What you got going on inside you right now? Uh, you can send us your answers to this week's question from hell via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM it to us at Twitter at thisishellradio. Or email it to Chuck along with your best wishes for him. Uh, with your wishes for him to get better to chuck at thisishell.com. Or to Alex... Uh, who is also incapacitated, but just with a cold today. So uh, you can also send him uh, your your well wishes to Alex at thisishell.com or uh, to me at Seb at thisishell.com. Uh, we must have your answer by the end of today's show following a moment of truth, an all-new moment of truth uh, by Jeff Dorchin. Uh, the best answer to the question from hell will win its author eternal salvation in uh, the shape of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. Uh, the t-shirt, the tote bag, the trucker hat, the coffee mug, the loaded flash drive, the face mask, the winter hat. Your choice. Uh, you can see all of our merchandise right now if you go to thisishell.com and click on support. There you can contribute to completely listener-funded This Is Hell. As Chuck would say, without you we got nothing. Yes, I'm stealing a lot of his, his sayings. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just... 
just keeping just trying to keep some consistency going here um so thanks to all of you for your support um sebastian uh, that's me will have some of your answers to this question from hell following the upcoming interview um and again i'm stealing chuck's words here just to to stay on brand and consistent Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your life, in the shower, in the bedroom, mm -hmm. when you're doing your taxes, when you're changing your kids' stanky diapers, this is hell. Just yesterday, the Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed piece that put up one of those consequences about student loan forgiveness nobody really wants to talk about, and that was, uh, where will the armed forces get fresh young recruits from if student loans are forgiven and university education is free. Um, and, and, and in the process, bearing one of the many, many baffling issues that are inherent to American higher education. As a foreigner who came to this country to pursue a PhD, the degree to which American universities have been turned into peddlers of degrees as commodities has been maybe not unexpected, but still shocking. The various ways that uh, the utterly thorough financialization of American higher education shapes, well, everything about the sector is still quite baffling to me as an outsider. While individual university instructors still largely follow the ideal of putting academic instruction and education first, uh, the same is simply no longer true of the higher education sector as a whole. The enormous costs associated with degrees also severely constrict the extracurricular activities and development, personal character development of students. If you are a young person and you are attending a college for four years, um, and that puts you in six-figure debt, then you are generally not as likely to explore, experiment, and become engaged with, you know, community or certain political movements or what have you. And this is this is especially uh, a glaring thing if you compare campus life in the U.S. to the kind of environment at universities uh, in Germany. Uh, German universities are hotbeds of political idealism, places where young people engage with ideas and principles and concepts that are, are oftentimes radical and daring, and well, oftentimes also just very annoying. But that's a different story. Uh, the same might still be true at some American institutions of higher learning, but the enormous price tag associated with one's presence here means that people, in their own material self-interest, are much less likely to engage with ideas and movements to a similar degree uh, if these activities do not directly contribute to finishing the degree as fast as and with as little debt as possible. Uh, this does not mean that campus activism and political engagement are entirely absent from American campuses, uh, and don't get me wrong, German higher education has also a lot of problems, but I'm not going to address those today. Um, and this whole aspect of financialization also has a nasty flip side for teachers and teaching in general. An instructor who has a student fail a class essentially adds several thousand dollars to the student's mountain of debt. Uh, and this was a lesson uh, that I had to internalize coming from a place where failing a class had no other consequences than having to just retake it the next semester and try again. In the German context, if a student, for whatever reason, fails to attend class regularly, just for example, the consequence may be annoying, um, because you just have to stick around for a semester longer, but not directly materially damaging. Uh, 
failure is very much an option, and as we know, failure is usually a pretty good teacher. In the American context, instructors, instructors should never allow a student to fail a class, no matter how deserved that may be, since failing a class adds substantial material damage to a person's financial well-being. But what do students actually receive for the debt that they put themselves into? As a graduate student, I taught many discussion sections and a handful of classes myself. Um, so, but was my performance worth the $3,000 price tag uh, the university asked from each student? The same sum the university would have charged if I had been a seasoned tenure professor. Are students and parents generally aware of how little pedagogical instruction many graduate teachers receive while being charged exorbitant sums of money for their services? To say nothing of how much of that money that graduate instructor actually sees at the end of the day. And I haven't even started talking about uh, the death of tenure, the adjunctification of faculty, and where universities under neoliberal capitalism choose to spend most of their money. And let me tell you, it's not academic instruction. The best paid positions at any given university is... Uh, usually the coach of the football or basketball team or some high-ranking administrator, not faculty members, not academic instructors. And then the pandemic hit, put, putting the entire miserable situation of American higher education into the harshest possible light. Since the institutions of higher education cannot survive without student tuition, there was no way to stop instruction from happening, uh, because that would have meant stopping the money flow coming in. But, of course, many students were not comfortable with paying full price for a quote-unquote diminished college experience, uh, and remote classes taught via Zoom and administered by the Orwellian nightmares that are proctoring apps. Not that I can blame them. So, for today's trip to the This Is Hell archives, I have chosen an interview Chuck conducted nearly a year ago with historian and uh, uh, AAUP member Trevor Griffey, that touches on many of these aspects, uh, and I hope I hope it will be um, enlightening, and I hope you enjoy it. Oops, of course, of course. Now I bump the microphone. Anyway, enjoy. This is hell. College and university teachers are increasingly overworked and underpaid. The profession of teaching higher education has more and more become deprofessionalized, with universities more interested in producing diplomas than actually providing a good education. Today's teachers of higher education face a world greatly influenced by the gig economy with its unstable employment and a lack of any kind of social safety net. If higher education can continues down this path, paved by financialization, the future of teaching and Learning in the United States is indeed grave. Here to help us get a better understanding of the challenges being faced today by college and university instructors, historian Trevor Griffey is co-author of the American Association of University Professors website, A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching Faculty Equity Equals Student Success, which Trevor co-wrote with Maya McIver. Welcome to This Is Hell, Trevor. Uh Good morning. Thank you for having me. Again, we want to thank uh, Andrew T. for suggesting we have Trevor on today's show. You can find out more about Trevor by going to 
uh, by following him on Twitter, at Trevor Griffey. I want to jump kind of towards the end because I think one of the most important things for people to understand is how universities are financed today. You write the research wings of campus labor uh, unions have analyzed and demanded alternatives to the unsustainable financialization of higher education through the selling of bonds to offset government budget cuts or changes in enrollment, a trend that has become worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why is financialization of higher education unsustainable? Why is the way we fund universities unsustainable? Well, because it relies on student debt that can never be repaid. Um, That's the short answer. Um, What uh, activists, faculty activists at Salem State University were able to pull together, at first they started in their own struggle. They were faced with budget cuts at their university. And so they did what any uh, good union tries to do, which is promote budget democracy, which means pouring through the budget and saying, can we develop an alternative proposal? And what they discovered in part was that um, their university for years had been floating bonds to pay for the maintenance and uh, construction of new buildings, uh, basically what is called the capital budget of their institution. Um, But those bonds uh, lock you into two different kinds of problems. The first is that they may have variable interest rates that depend on your institution's credit rating. So all of a sudden your school, even a public school, cedes its authority over its own budget to a private set of uh, people who rate its credit. And that means that those credit rating agencies can exert some degree of influence and control over the governance of public higher education itself, because the punishment for violating their strictures is higher interest rates. And therefore, things that once made no sense to me until Salem State sort of went public and national and is is now campaigning around this issue and waking up, kind of sounding the alarm uh, to schools around the country, is that why is it you have all these universities that say they have to cut their budgets when they have large cash reserves? You know, the people, there's dark humor about, oh, you can never touch the reserves. And it almost, it produces this sense of absurdity when you're at an institution that has millions and in some cases billions in the bank and they say they can't touch it. And uh, that's not for you, right? And you say, well, why? Well, some of the credit rating agencies will say that that is what we've decided your rainy day fund needs to be. And you can't use it in a rainy day and in addition, if you disagree with us, we'll, in, we'll in, increase your interest payments. So that's a big problem. The second is who pays off these bonds. Um, it was one thing when, uh, I mean, there's always been a degree to which students have been paying for education, even if tuition might be free. So they pay in the form of fees, they pay in the form of services that may or may not be mandatory. But as schools have increasingly shifted the costs of education from the taxpayer to the student. It means that you have students not only paying for the construction of buildings uh, or the maintenance of buildings that might have been covered by the state, but now you have them making interest payments. And so this is important for linking 
student and worker solidarity together because the growing tuition is covering things like interest payments and uh, and kind of ex like pretty frank rent seeking from Wall Street. And it's being used as an excuse to not pay living wages to instructors and to staff. And so now you see universities in this bind. Now it's a, it's a decentralized higher education system we're in. It doesn't mean all schools are uh, have the equal amount of interest payments or amount of bonds that they've floated. But since the Great Recession, you see more states like the state of California, where I am, uh, that have stopped contributing to the funds necessary to maintain their buildings or replace them with new ones or expand their campuses and instead telling their universities float bonds to cover that. Instead, you get low interest. But so you get locked into these things that feel like the structural adjustment programs that other countries get subjected to. And then in addition, in crisis moments like during COVID, you start to see this, uh, oh, hey, we have great credit. We have this unexpected um, a budget shortfall, maybe we can float some more bonds. And in a moment when uh, investors are sitting on piles of cash and not knowing what a safe bet is, they might actually invest in higher education. But ultimately what they're doing is they're investing in getting rates of return that even if modest by Wall Street standards are going to mean that students are not just paying interest on their own loans, but their very tuition itself is paying interest on loans. And so it's like a double form of exploitation that's taking place that we really need to change. And it's, I've been very impressed by teachers around the country, and I, I am frankly not one of them. I have learned from teachers around the country who are educating people about these issues and saying uh, this financialization uh, needs to be named and challenged. So let me just ask you, uh really big question, because this is something that's been bugging me for a very, very long time. How undemocratic are credit ratings? How much of a threat are credit ratings to a public good like education? Oof. Well, I mean, other than what I've just described, which is to say, well, let me let me put it this way. As someone who is a faculty member, uh, not an expert in credit ratings, but an active union member, my union works for, toward the ultimate goal is budget democracy. We see economic democracy as fundamental to real democracy. And we see shared governance as of institutions, including in higher education, as not very meaningful unless we uh, have a transparent process for not only seeing what our institution is spending, but for influencing its own budget priorities. Anytime you have an outside group of people who as a result of their being wealthy, rather than knowing anything about the institution or industry that you're involved in, setting the standards for what you should do with your budget, it's usually a problem. This makes me think that credit ratings are uh, just 
an enforcement of undemocratic economics, and that's what's really disturbing to me about it, that it has so much power over our decision-making when it comes to how we fund things. You also write that at the University of California, where you write where we teach, the radical student protests against tuition increases in 2009 were partly informed by the public letter from Bob Meister, uh, president of the Council of University of California Faculty Association, stating that they pledged your tuition to service institutional debt and that the 30% tuition increases students were facing were partly going to Wall Street. Yet, despite those protests, the UC system doubled its debt burden between 2009 and 2016 to offset budget cuts and has sold billions of dollars of new bonds since the pandemic began in 2015. The system was already paying $2,200 per student just in interest payments. We shudder to think of how much that figure might be for the 2021-2022 academic year. Were they forced into this situation? Was there any other way that they could have dealt with budget cuts than by going into debt to Wall Street? Was this their only option? Well, this is where you get to a kind of complex set of institutions each of which, I mean, it's just really remarkable because I see myself as pretty much near the bottom of this institutional pyramid. And yet at the same time, what's so striking is that each layer above me, there's a group of people who say they're powerless, right? And who say somebody else is responsible for this problem. You know, the department chairs say that the dean set the budget, the deans say the provost, the provost says the president, the president says the chancellor, and the chancellor says, well, it's the governor, and the governor says it's the, the voters. And every single one of them passes the buck in important ways so that you have this chain reaction that has accommodated the tax revolt of the 1970s and kind of codified it into law. So that's one piece where at the state government level, what has happened is that as school populations have become more diverse and as more young people who are faced with the effects of the attack on the working class, the de-unionization of the American workforce, and the gigification of the American economy, they see um, a college credential as being used as a form of employment discrimination. So they want to go to college sometimes just to like feel like more options are open to them because uh, businesses are not investing in job training. So you see more demand, more diversity of the student body, and yet middle class and upper class people wanting to pay lower taxes. So this creates a series of real challenges where if we don't challenge that dynamic, and in some ways, if we don't name it as partly racist as well as classist, we are in a series of kind of um, choices that, that reproduce the problems that we know exist and make them worse. And then in addition, there's the federal level. Even if states got their acts together fully, even if they said we want to fully fund higher education and make it free or close to free, or we want to make it free for people who can't afford it. And, and even if they were totally effective in doing so, states don't print their own money. The federal government does. So anytime there's a recession, uh, there's, they either need to offset it with new taxes very quickly, and even that's somewhat difficult, or they need to benefit from some kind of counter-cyclical spending at the national level. 
and the federal government is only unevenly committed to that and certainly not committed to it as a higher education policy. So that means when you have a big recession and the effects of decades of defunding, you now have a series of sort of uh, this is hell kind of choices, right? Unless you challenge the structure of the political economy itself, then you're in trouble. Then you're saying we need to do more with less or we need to commercialize and financialize our institutions or we need to do both. And that's the kind of vicious cycle higher ed has been in for decades, but it has accelerated so much in the past 10 years that I think we are in both a scary and exciting moment. What's scary is we can imagine real institutional collapse at certain levels where high tuition and low job prospects uh, are producing schools no longer even being able to pay their bills. Um, but what is exciting is that the delegitimization of the tuition spikes uh, in kind of 2009, 2010, 2011, that were not unique to California, all across the country, the, the slow boil was increased much more quickly. So people got to see what was going on. And even though they don't fully understand how long this process has been going and why it's been going on, they know there's popular awareness that something is wrong with higher education in America. And that provides an opportunity for people who have long been critics to say, we need something new and different. And, um, and I think that's, that's the moment we're in. I think we're naive if we expect the leaders of college institutions to demand a new political economy that fully funds higher education. They've first, they've shown that they're willing to accommodate budget cuts to a degree that is really unconscionable from the perspective of students and workers. But second, as scholars of academic capitalism have shown, um, many of these people are very enthusiastic about commercializing their institutions. In fact, that's what they were hired to do. In a number of states, they may have no educational experience whatsoever, and they come from the private sector, and they think because they wrecked some, uh, some other industry in the name of uh, extracting profits for hedge fund levels, that they can come to higher ed and do the same. And I really think, I mean, it, it's, um, it's a tall ask. It's not an easy one, but I think students and workers at college campuses need to work together to create plans to change this system because we can't expect the administrators to do it for us and the politicians won't understand the problem unless we educate them. You were talking about having something new and different, but let's go back to in the past and something old for a moment, uh, because you begin by writing the campaign for a new deal for higher education in the United States must address the fact that more than two thirds of faculty members in higher education today are temporary employees working in demoralizing gig economy conditions, and that too many of them suffer from low pay, large class sizes and excessive workloads that punish rather than reward excellent teaching. Has this always been the case, or was there ever a time when college and university instructors were not temporary workers in a gig economy suffering from low pay despite increased work? Was there a time when teachers had it better, when, when higher education instructors had it better than they have it now, and what changed? This is a great question. The answer is yes and no. 
Um, we are in a different higher educational system that's being asked to do different things than the ones of decades prior. Um, we're in a much larger system that is serving a much more diverse population. Um, in the past, there has always been a need for temporary instructors who are, uh, in, as one euphemism goes, visiting. Uh, that is to say, uh, you know, you have, imagine you have like a regular workforce, but it takes a long time to hire a new person, maybe a few months or a year. In the meantime, you bring in somebody temporary, they fill in, and then you, you have that person fill in while you look for a, a long-time replacement, uh, a long-term replacement. And then you may use that temporary person. Actually, that person may apply for the job to have a full-time job. Well, what's happened is that over time, that kind of position, which always was abused somewhat, has become used as a kind of loophole to respond to the pressures of doing more with less. And so the question, part of what you're, I hear you asking is, how long have we been asking higher education to do more with less? And the answer is a very long time. <laughs> there, are, there are debates among historians and activists that sometimes produce more heat than light about, well, did it start in the 60s? Did it start in the 70s? Has it always been cooked into the system? Um, what is most important to know is that it has become much worse since the 1960s. So the system has grown, but instead of it being something like 55% of all instructors uh, being on the tenure track, uh, which is to say having long-term job stability and academic freedom, and then many more instructors who aren't on the tenure track having full-time jobs, over the last few decades, you've seen a major increase in the number of college teachers who are part-time workers and who lack professional status. So they, um, they don't have guarantees of consistent employment. They don't have living wages. In many cases, they don't have health benefits or even pensions. Uh, sometimes this is even true in union shops and the problem is widespread. Uh, it is at its worst in the for-profit uh, college industry, uh, which has grown as a kind of parasite to just uh, get low-income students to take out loans and then have most of the money they take out in loans go to shareholders rather than to educators and to schools. And so that's, and those schools have essentially abolished the full-time consistent uh, position of the college teacher. But at community colleges, the, probably the most democratic and certainly the most popular of the higher education institutions we have in the US, uh, they have been at the vanguard of um, replacing uh, kind of full-time professional status teachers with low wage temps. And that's where you're most likely to find the poorest teachers. But you see it across the academic spectrum. You see it at Harvard. You see it at Long Beach City College, and you see it everywhere in between. And one of the great tragedies of this is that schools have evolved into things whose budget priorities are not primarily focused on teachers and teaching. And that's why Mia MacGyver and I, when we wrote our piece for the special series that the AAP is putting out on the need for a new deal for higher education, we didn't say we need a new deal for low-wage teachers, though we do. 
we said we need a new deal for college teachers and teaching because institutions across the spectrum don't value teachers and teaching the way they should. They have become so saddled with, and in some cases have so embraced uh, a variety of services, public-private partnerships, rent-seeking activities that they've become distracted from their core missions and they have come to rely upon a disposable workforce that, uh, that turns their mission from one of education to credentialing. And we as part-time teachers uh, and as contingent faculty can see this most clearly because we are the ones who are hired to teach the basic skills that students need to succeed in college. For decades, colleges have decided for reasons I don't entirely understand that they don't want writing instructors to have living wages and professional status. I don't get it. If you can't read or write, you can't do much else in college. And yet at the same time, there's just this industry practice that writing instructors are not to have job security or living wages unless, and, and so as a result, on one way, we have uh, probably some of the greatest leaders of faculty and grad student unions are writing instructors who say this is outrageous. Uh, my colleague who recommended I talk here, and I should say um, he and I were not in collusion. I had no idea that he was suggesting <laughs> that I come onto your show. Uh, I, I was laughing the entire time you were reading the email uh, from him because I could hear his voice throughout. Uh, he is one of many writing instructors who has worked in the trenches, who decide uh, they love their job, they care about the mission, but they also, they can't believe it. They're like, why, why would an institution this wealthy not pay for basic writing instruction? And the same is true, uh, or invest in it, I should say, to the degree that they should, like it matters. And the same is true for math instruction. The same is true for language instruction. All the core skills you need to succeed in college are treated as like extras that anybody can do. And, and you have a situation where the teachers not only are paid low wages so that they have to teach a lot of classes or they have to be independently wealthy or they have to have side jobs Those are, or they have to have, um, uh, be married to people who have uh, better jobs than they do. Those are the ways that you survive unless you live in uh, abject poverty, which frankly some do. Um, I had shared an office with someone who was a homeless instructor at Long Beach City College. Um, but but why, why impose that level of hardship uh, on instructors? Um, it, it, it actually shows a kind of irrationality in the system. And, um, and on the one hand, when you're stretched that thin, it's hard to then set aside part of your life to also fight those conditions. But I think that's the opportunity we have right now, uh, which is uh, we've got to speak out. We have to organize and we have to say, if, if we're going to have free college, we also have to have better college. Trevor, the conversations I enjoy the most are the ones that I learn the most from. And the ones that I learn the most from are conversations like this one, when I have 50-some pre-scripted questions, and then all of a sudden you come up with, you say things that lead me to have follow-up questions instead and abandoning my script, because 
there's so much so much of what you just said that I want to follow up on. First of all, so does this situation with colleges being so handcuffed to financialization? This sounds like it, it predates neoliberalism. So what impact has neoliberalism had on the university system and university and higher education? This is a great question. I, I recently got in a, a sort of scholarly tangle with somebody that will be published soon that, that addresses this question, and I don't have definitive answers. <clears throat> My belief is that neoliberalism as an ideology and political project that delegitimizes taxing the wealthy, delegitimizes government spending as big government, that encourages uh, the shifting of the costs of public goods to the consumer and turning it into a private good, even when it's ostensibly done by the government. Like that rationale, uh, I think, provided cover for these practices and contributed to their acceleration since the 1970s. Um, I think Republicans like Ronald Reagan were at the vanguard, but as we know about the history of neoliberalism, the combination of corporate spending uh, to boost this otherwise unpopular ideology, combined with uh, some of the other kind of uh, racist appeals and other appeals that conservatives used to otherwise foist an agenda that was for the few on the many, that came to be embraced in a defensive way by the Democratic Party as well. And so I, you know, a lot of the damage was done 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. And I think while the, the spikes, again, the tuition spikes in kind of 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, they brought a lot of um, outrage that is correct and righteous. And uh, some states have sought to respond to it, like the state of California, by rolling back some of the two, they haven't rolled back the tuition hikes, but they've increased funding back to the schools again, uh, at least to get them back to some baseline level, though not at the capital budgets. But I think there's been a waking up. And, and what excites me about the work that I and my colleagues are doing, even though we're sort of lowly temporary instructors, and working with students and other kind of uh, staff, uh, just to try to talk about these issues, is that I think the public anger about tuition increases has also raised really fundamental issues about capitalism in America. Young people being asked to pay more for less at school while facing a job market with anemic job growth that is mainly located in de-unionized gig kinds of jobs have been at the vanguard of asking critical questions of the economic system we're in and saying that this is unacceptable. And this has actually positioned higher education in, at, within the debate about what kind of economy that we have. Because for decades, what politicians, especially so Republican politicians might have always you know, had a chip on their shoulder about higher education and been happy to defund it or to privatize it. Democrats who were neoliberals, public education was central to their position that you don't need unions anymore, that unions are an obstruction to economic growth, that we can have free trade. 
the Clintonian model was to say, if you've been displaced by your job, we'll provide public school and you'll go get retrained and you'll just get a better or a different job. And that's the, you just have to constantly be learning and growing and stay competitive. Well, that had its own cruelty, but it also depended on the image of the meritocracy and the, on public higher education and on workers internalizing that it was within their control to stay afloat or maybe even to have some social mobility. Once the cost of tuition got high enough and people in higher ed who had been critical of what's going on started getting a bigger platform that you know, people weren't like, oh, these are just privileged teachers, who cares? But where they're saying, no, there's really big problems here. Then all of a sudden, we can see higher education as a microcosm and how uh, at first the system was functioning to reproduce inequality. It was not providing low-income, disproportionately people of color with the quality education they deserved in the first place. And it was putting students in debt. And, and therefore, it's part of a bigger set of problems. And our campaigns to reform it can also say, it, it, instead of trying to pull back a myth that we're in a meritocracy, maybe we can think of a different kind of way of promoting education and in so doing, also provide a better deal for our students. And you point out how uh, poor teaching conditions lead to poor quality education, poor learning conditions. And you were just saying how for-profit universities, they put so little money back into the teachers, back into the students. The, the money goes to shareholders and investors. And this undermines the ability to teach people fundamentals, to, to learn the basics that they need to know so they can move forward with their education. How much can that pressure on having these non-tenured temporary worker uh, gig economy instructors teaching people the fundamentals, what impact, impact can that have on those students to progress with their education, to progress with their degree? If you don't know how to write, if you don't know your basic skills, how can you learn any more beyond that? Right. And in addition... If you've been warehoused in your high school and you've come to see schooling as an oppressive institution, which I think for many people it partly is, um, and you feel you'd much rather kind of just get a job in the job market, but you're being told you can't even be a manager in your retail outlet unless you have a college degree and you go back to college, already you have a, a, a very reasonable attitude that this system is, is messed up. Right. And so you need uh, if, if you if you really are investing in sort of social transformation and not just in credentialing and you're not just extracting rents from those students and trying to either get them in debt or use their kind of need for a credential as a way for other kind of job growth. But if you really want to serve those students, then you want to have people with kind of professional standards who have been trained to assist them and who have workloads that allow them to do their very best work. I don't wanna go so far as to say there's no learning going on or that, the, that all non-tenure track instructors are, um, are bad teachers or that workload issues are just specific to non-tenure track instructors. One of the effects of kind of the gigification of higher education instruction 
is that you also have a lot of responsibilities placed on tenure track instructors that just get them in endless meetings and, and require them to do certain kinds of things that lecturers aren't even allowed to do. But the bigger issue you're getting to is that the conditions I'm talking about just as a, as a professional, like why would you hire somebody without a search? <laughs> you know, why would you never evaluate their teaching? Why would you only depend on student evaluations, but never observe whether they're doing their job? Why would you provide them no professional development where you say, here are the best practices in the field of education as we know it, and here are the ways that you implement it, and here's how we're going to support you. Now, to the degree that we have those things, it's usually at wealthy institutions, uh, a few cases where there's been dynamic leadership, and in a number of cases, it's because unions have fought for them. In some ways, and, and my union is in the midst of a campaign like this right now, we are fighting to get the, our employer to do its job. <laughs> it sounds so strange. We actually, in, as lecturers in the University of California, we have been told that the University of California does not want to have to evaluate our teaching in our first five years. And it's insane to us, right? Like We're like, we want to be evaluated. We want actually you to invest in us so that we can be better teachers who serve our students. And but but they are so attached to a low wage model and they regard this aspect of their educational mission uh so little or they have so little regard for it that the the yeah right at the point of production in the education system you have a kind of meltdown and the way that it impacts students i've had students tell me yeah we had an instructor who would show up late or leave early because they had to get to another class on the other side of town. Or they would be so overwhelmed by their workloads that they wouldn't be able to grade our papers in time and we wouldn't get proper feedback. Or they'd be so absent-minded, uh, though I, I don't think this is an essential part of teaching, but there are so many economic and emotional stresses placed on somebody with a high workload that when one thing goes wrong, it's easy to, for it to have a cascading effect. But I have had students talk to me about how they worried that they were not going to um, be able to graduate in time because uh, they felt like they were not learning in their class. Um, this, I don't want to exaggerate this. Um, this is the worst part of the situation we're talking about. There are other aspects that are remarkable and amazing. Um, but something so basic as this should not be a problem in America. And um, the fact that it is shows the need for um, some pretty big change. And you point out how these teachers who are teaching the fundamentals, the teachers who are in the most precarious position, those teachers, they do not have a voice when it comes to university governance. So they are the ones who have the most contact with the students. They're the ones who have the most contact with incoming students. They're the ones who have the most contact with knowing the teaching and learning experiences in universities in the past. Were teachers at that level more involved in university governance than they are today? So uh, shared governance is something through which uh, universities are supposed to allow control of the curriculum to be in the hands of faculty. Um, there's always been, and, and the idea was, uh, if you just put it in the hands of people who 
had the financial bottom line of the school, uh, and, and they weren't checked by people who had professional training, you'd be in big trouble. So there's always been a struggle to protect that. It's always been an uneven goal. Um, and lecturers, people without tenure, have almost always been excluded from it. <laughs> and so one of the consequences of schools, because of their bottom line, um, relying increasingly on people without tenure just in order to uh, in order to basically subsidize the rest of the institution. Um, so take the tuition revenue generated by the classes they get and give less of it to the teacher and give more of it to other parts of the school. So in that trade, they've also meant that like a growing, a declining percentage of the total faculty shape the curriculum. And those who do have less contact with first year uh, students and with students in some general education classes. That doesn't mean uh, tenure track instructors have no knowledge of those classes, but it does mean that uh, yes, their voice is left out. I'm somebody who, um, I'm of two minds of this. <clears throat> On the one hand, I see a lot of the shared governance that is offered to tenure track instructors as totally bogus, like just as lame as uh, student government seemed when I was in college, uh, which is to say sort of like fake power where you perform legislative actions, but because there's no budget transparency and you have no say over the budget, uh, it's a lot of performative work where people who are, it's like the, the farm teams for the middle management of the university. And so I'm not like excited to participate in that process. But on the other hand, um, when lecturers are excluded from it, that's part of how tenure track instructors don't care about the conditions of lecturers. So if lecturers had a vote over what, what classes they taught or how their classes were taught, all of a sudden tenure track instructors who have been enlisted in the process of destroying their own profession might actually wake up and pay attention and say, you know what? Maybe we should evaluate these faculty. <laughs> maybe we should, maybe we should like know what they're doing in the classroom and uh, care about it in a meaningful way. So that's that's one reason to say that um, including lecturers in governance matters, in addition to the fact that they can provide insights on from on the ground reporting that should inform the school's educational mission. Just a couple more questions for you, Trevor, because I want to make sure that we also get to other reforms that you have considered or other changes within the university system. Uh, you write that we recommend that state governments establish parity factors for all public college and university faculty. And you add that we believe that parity will change regional labor markets substantially without dictating or micromanaging pay scales. We're excited to see that legislation to establish 75 percent parity was recently introduced in New Hampshire and legislation to establish 100 percent parity was recently introduced in Illinois. We hope that this model quickly finds its way into national policy. So we're doing this show from Chicago. How might that substantial change of uh, parity manifest itself here in Illinois? Well, it would be huge. So um, without knowing a, a great amount of the details of the working conditions of teachers in Illinois, if they're anything like the rest of the country, and I assume they are, then you have a, a community college and possibly teaching college system uh, whereby 
uh, you not only have uh, temp faculty in your as educators, but you have faculty who are paid less per course who are in that temp status. And so if you want one way to promote not just economic justice, but for me, the key to changing the system is changing the incentive structure. You don't want administrators to have an incentive to deprofessionalize their faculty. And one way to reduce that incentive is to say, no, you cannot pay somebody less just because they're low wage, just because, excuse me, they're a temporary instructor. You have to sit, pay them the same amount. So the fact that unions have bargained for this in some uh, shops. So I found, I recently found out that in Marin County, a very wealthy county in California, uh, the California Federation of Teachers uh, Union in that community college system bargained for 95% pay parity between their non-tenure track and tenure track instructors. It's not a perfect system, but if we were to try to bring that to scale from the bottom up, we'd have to negotiate like a hundred different contracts and all these different schools, and then it would be unevenly enforced. If we could just bypass this decentralized bargaining system and go straight to the state ledge, even though it's hard to convince state legislators in some cases, then you can just mandate it. You can say, this is ridiculous. And honestly, it's a great way to educate your state legislature. Many of them say, wait, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on public higher education. You mean to tell me they're not paying their teachers a living wage? You say, yes, and there's something you can do about it. Um, and so this can be a, a really important change. And Illinois can lead the way on this issue uh, if, if you want to kind of, um, uh, it would certainly send out a beacon of light for the rest of the country. We have been speaking with historian Trevor Griffey, co-author of the American Association of University Professors website article, A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching Faculty Equity Equals Student Success, success which Trevor co-wrote with Mia McIver. We want to thank listener Andrew for taking the money from Trevor to send us. Hey, hey, hey. What? Wait, what? Did I say something? You can find out more about Trevor on Twitter at Trevor Griffey. One last question for you, Trevor. Uh, and it's what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, additionally, federal and state officials who shape policy for public higher education and vote on funding must improve their understandings of higher education, teaching, labor. The Affordable Care Act, for example, lowballs faculty labor by assuming that every hour of classroom teaching time requires only 1.25 hours of classroom of work outside the classroom. Advising students, preparing to teach, grading papers, and writing letters of recommendation too often go unpaid altogether, subjecting non-tenure track faculty to wholesale wage theft. So, Trevor, to what extent does the U.S. education system depend upon wage theft? And does that make higher education in the United States inevitably unsustainable? Um, I would say it depends on low-wage teachers. And certainly um, you could also say that that is a form of wage theft. Uh, two things about this, uh, one negative and one positive. Uh, the negative is that, um, but well, 
actually, let me focus on the positive for a second and I'll come back to the negative. One thing I haven't said as part of this talk, and I know that this is uh, contrary to the idea that we're in hell, is that uh, Bernie Sanders has introduced legislation as part of a college for all bill that would not only eliminate student debt and provide free college, but it would also mandate that the schools that receive federal money have 75% of their instructional workforce on the tenure track. I think this would be a enormous boom uh, and that it was it is very much worth supporting. And so I encourage your listeners to check out the College for All Act and support it. Um, how much, oh, but here's the, here's the both bad and good part as it relates to the question of how much do our universities depend on faculty labor exploitation? Uh, they, they stand on it, they rest on it, they depend on it. Um, and like the rest of the American workforce, one of the big open questions is if we fight and we get our rights, uh, excuse me, the dog is barking in the background, will we, will we face the other tool that employers use against all workers that try to improve their wages and working conditions, which is automation. So at the very moment that we push for more wages and we say, you have to invest in teachers, there's a chance that they could shift us to online instruction curated by chat managers with prepackaged classes and say, I guess we can, I guess, guess poor and working class people, we can no longer afford to provide them teachers. So we have a multi-front struggle ahead of us. I gotta know what kind of dog you have. That uh, sounded <laughs> it's a, huge. It's a, it's a pit lab mix. Uh, it's very territorial. And uh, she... Uh, really is is part of an, a, a long-term struggle against the mailman. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the show today, Trevor. Really enjoyed the conversation. You can count on the fact that I'll be bugging you in the future to have you back on the show because I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. All right, take care. And we are back in the present, and this is still producer Sebastian. Uh, so in the coming weeks, we will be playing uh, more of these staff picks, um, staff axes, I don't know. Uh, I, I just see this more as an axe that I pick rather than uh, uh, a pick. That doesn't make sense. Uh, we will have more of these uh, staff picks and axes uh, at 10 a.m. Chicago time, probably until Chuck fully uh, recovers and uh, returns in all uh his former and continued glory to the studio. Uh, we will also have all new rotten history, all new questions from hell, and uh, as today, all new moments of truth. If you wish to show your appreciation for our work here, uh, please go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support, where you can buy merch or subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, you can also find our Patreon just directly. Cut out the middleman and go directly there um, at patreon.com slash thisishell. All of this, uh, all of your support, uh, keeps uh, this here completely listener-funded boat afloat. Without you, we got nothing. And uh, there will be all brand new content coming once Chuck's recovery is complete. We promise this. Um, new interviews, new Patreon monologues, new regular monologues, new everything. Uh, so thanks to all of you for your support. 
And now, in an effort to run this joke into the ground as fast as possible, Sebastian, do we have more answers to this week's question from hell? And please remind the listeners, what is this week's question from hell? Thanks, Sebastian. Uh, I do have, indeed, more answers. And uh, this week's question from, question from hell was, is, what you got going on inside of you right now? What you got going on inside of you right now? Uh, so, uh, on Facebook, we have Ronaldo M. writing good wish he has inside of him right now. Good wishes for Chuck's recovery. Thanks, Ronaldo. Uh, Tom G. says, holy shoot, only he didn't write shoot, but this is still the radio, so we can't really say that. Um... Sloan T.L. says, Bubble Guts and Ennui. Um, Neil C. says, A withering away of the state of my body. Um, yeah, that's, uh, since we are, since we are just fresh back from the dead, um, or limbo, or purgatory, or whatever, uh, we do not have that many replies to this week's question question from hell. We will have some more after, um, the moment of truth. Uh, yeah, which we are getting to right now. Um... Leaving on vacation and never turning uh, our alarm clocks off, just so the neighbors have something to complain about, even when we're away since 1996. This is hell. Uh, if you want to make it possible that any of us ever has a chance to actually go on vacation, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support, and see how you, yes, you there in the green shirt, can enable us to keep on doing what we're doing. Bad habits, good habits, and everything in between. Coming up is the moment of truth with Jeff Dorcham, and following that, we will read the final answers to this week's question from hell, and announce this week's winner. So, stay tuned. Um... Yeah. Producing, um... Producing and, uh... (laughs) Doing this at the same time is is quite challenging. Um, All the balls in the air all the time. Anyway, and I am stealing Chuck's lines again, live from Hangover Country. This is hell. And here's one who helps keeping it that way. And that would be Jeff Dorcham with with the uh, moment of truth. One, two, you know what to do Calcium, the other white pride. And uh, thank you, Sebastian, for producing today. And thank you, all you producers out there, Alex and Lindsay and Dan and whoever else ends up helping us out. Uh, We love you guys. Couldn't do it without you, of course. I certainly couldn't do anything without everybody's help. Uh, Just hoping for Chuck's speedy and full recovery 
and I'll be there in a couple of weeks to uh, bring him some chicken soup, which hopefully he'll be able to take uh, orally instead of intravenously or some other way I have just imagined that is disgusting. Calcium, the other white pride. Materialism is a beautiful and compelling view of the world, but to account for consciousness, we have to go beyond the resources it provides. David Chalmers, professor of philosophy and neuroscience at NYU. We are human. At least that's what I've always been told. You might have been told the same thing. Humans talk about themselves a lot. Humans find people endlessly intriguing. All stories are about people, even the stories about animals. Even science fiction stories in which not a single human might appear are all about people. One might understandably conclude by this that humanity is a consummately narcissistic species. At any time in history, and even before history, there have been humans who have considered it their destiny to dominate the other animals, the plants, non-binary organisms such as fungi and slime molds, and the earth itself. Even as astronomy has inflated our observable sphere from the geocentric to heliocentric to galactic and beyond, and our commonly understood objective reality has broadened by billions of light years, there remain swaths of the population whose deeply held conceit that humans are the center of importance in the cosmos has only hardened. Maybe they fear reality's unfathomable expanse. Perhaps their desire to shrink it to the size of the earthbound human sphere is driven by insecurity rather than the ever-fashionable narcissism. Then again, doesn't narcissism comprise a varied palette of emotions, poised like sentinels to guard the ego, and isn't protecting the ego from the full force of comprehending the vast meaningless of existence, the imperative that has always driven human behavior? All humans tell themselves, humans are more than insignificant dust in an apple-skin-thick biosphere shrink-wrapped over a lonely planet without a purpose, flecks of grit in a cosmically inutile tissue of chemical and mechanical activity surrounding a soft-boiled ball of minerals and metal. We matter, if not to ourselves or each other, then at least to some supernatural character we made up for this purpose. Isn't that the true subtext of every proverb, aphorism, bromide, pedagogy, philosophy, theology, and great work of literature? I'd say it is. I'd be interested in a remotely persuasive rebuttal to such an analysis, but don't rush it. Take some time and really torture yourself over your argument. It'll give you something to take your mind off your inconsequence. Now, calcium. There's a heavy hitter. Imagine how you'd feel if you were calcium. Even though the conditions that brought you into existence were, as far as you could understand them, if you could in fact understand anything, fairly atypical. They would be exponential orders of magnitude less rare than the unique conditions required to produce and sustain life, let alone life with a materialistic approach to everything. The creation and development of life might, for all we know, have only happened on one tiny planet orbiting an otherwise unremarkable star. Calcium, on the other hand, is everywhere throughout the universe. It's made in supernova explosions called, appropriately enough, calcium-rich supernovae. Coincidentally, scientists recently witnessed an unusual calcium-rich supernova event in 2019, basically now in historical terms, in a galaxy a mere 55 million light-years away. This means they witnessed an event 
10 million years more recent than the mass extinction of the dinosaurs. That's like yesterday. The most interesting part of what they witnessed, though, was an X-ray emission lasting only five days. So it was pretty key that dozens of scientists jumped into action within the first 10 hours of the event, which was initially observed by an amateur astronomer. I am almost scientifically illiterate. So all the research I've done on this has probably yielded many a wrong conception, but I have been tossing around the idea for this essay for a few decades, a good while before I learned of the 2019 calcium-rich supernova event. So at this point, now that the event has happened, and I've learned about it in my small way, my hand has been forced. I had to write this now. It is the culmination of basically the literary work of my late middle adulthood. If I were calcium and in many ways I am, I would be super excited. Incidentally, I think if anyone ever unweaves all the epistemological fallacies intertwined in that immediately previous sentence, both human beings and calcium will have made a gargantuan stride toward understanding consciousness. Far away in the Messier 100 spiral galaxy, in the empty corridors between streams of stars, nurseries of stellar creation, and stellar graveyards, in an empty gulf in space, there was a compact star. In truth, they don't really know what progenitor body was there before the explosion. An unseen compact star, a white dwarf of heretofore unobserved mass, maybe, that was getting ready to go supernova, but just before it did, it ejected a large amount of hydrogen gas from its surface. There followed an explosion of the stellar core a short time later, which propelled the majority material of the star through the shell of hydrogen, causing a short-lived X-ray emission, which in turn caused a chemical reaction, which resulted in producing so much calcium that the term calcium-rich supernova was too weak a descriptor. The richest of the rich, one physicist said. A small team of physicists at our own Northwestern University published a paper in April 2020 placing the X-ray event in a category with other events known for the past two decades as calcium strong transients. I'm not sure what makes them think strong evokes more calcium than rich, but I'm not a scientist and as I've said, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Scientists, real ones had long been trying to figure out where all the calcium in the universe came from, as calcium-rich supernovae and other known stellar sources couldn't account for all of it. The theory now is that about half the calcium in the universe was produced in transient events resembling the one observed in 2019 in Messier 100. It seems to me, from light reading and back-of-the-envelope calculations done without either mathematical literacy or even an envelope, that the earliest such transient events couldn't have occurred before the universe was at least 4 billion years old. Still, in any case, they were happening long enough ago that a butt-ton of calcium made it into the cloud of material that formed the Earth. The molten inner Earth contains calcium. Calcium is in the Earth's crust, was in it as it pushed up to rise atop the highest mountains. Acid in the rain washes it down, bonding it with carbon, creating limestone pillars in caves, limestone solution rivulets flowing into rivers, flowing into oceans. 
It alternately combines and dissolves in plant roots, lichens, algae, and the mycorrhizal web in the soil, and it moves into the cells of trees, lettuces, berries, thence into creatures' bodies to make bones, shells, and teeth. Calcium ions are in every living cell on the planet. It helps our muscles expand and contract. It travels inside us, in our blood. What I'm getting at is this. If I were calcium, and I am, and I were debating a team of humans who consider themselves the center of the universe, I'm sure I'd have more than enough ammunition to leave them without an argument, much less a leg to stand on. That's right, not even a metaphorical femur on which to prop themselves up. I might say, in conclusion, delivering the coup de grace, hey, I facilitated the formation of muscles, cartilage, nerves, blood, and skin, simply to wrap them around me so I could dance as your skeletons. You are all just my meat puppets, and when you are gone, I'll still be dancing through the cosmos in other forms. It's almost as if the whole universe were created just to provide me a place to dance through. If the universe indeed slows down, as it's expected to, it's certain life will peter out long before calcium does. The last mountain goat will be long dead and dissolved in the galloping eons, while the last chalk mountain still floats through space. Whole chalk planets will dance on our graves and then forget us in the clouds of billions of years of memory dust. You humans think you're all that, but you're bound to wash away like a handful of chopped liver in the rain. You can't even keep the promises you make to yourselves, let alone the ones you dream of making, all the utopias, discursive contrivances for achieving peace, a dream world of unpolluted rivers to swim in and non-carcinogenic air to breathe, a galactic federation of mutual respectful civilizations, drinking Cardassian Kenar and replicated Earl Grey tea. Though the odds are parsimoniously against it, it may happen eventually, but right now, even the regular business of succeeding as a species into the next two centuries is looking to be a brutal struggle. Sorry, humans, but if asked which star to hitch my wagon to, I'm going to have to go with calcium. Uh, this has been the moment of truth. Good day. Well, that was beautiful, Jeffrey. Well, thank you, Sebastian. I guess I guess uh, you're making a good argument that we should uh, retire calcification and being calcified uh, as as bad concepts. When exactly? Yeah. Oh my goodness, are you kidding? And uh, osteoporosis obviously is very dangerous. I mean, sure, uh, just <laughs> lack of calcium, right? Right. Uh, Drink you your milk. What? Drink, Drink your, milk? your milk. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. Um, so you told me you had uh, uh, your own answer to uh, this this week's uh, this week's question from hell. Uh, yes, I did. Do you want me to deliver that? Uh, yes, please. Because I don't remember what it was, oh. and now I have to reopen um, the fucking. Oh. Yeah, see this. This is this is why I'm I'm still on my on my college instructor horse, where I'm like just I just like putting people on the spot, right? Wait, I got it somewhere in here. Uh, I have to move that. And I have to do that. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Clarence Song, Alexander. Okay, here we go. Oh, by the way, no, that does not make you a low-key, high-key conservative. It just makes you Chuck's bitch. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, what do I have going on inside myself? Mm-hmm. 
a series of incendiary events initiated by the consumption of Salvadoran beans. Yeah, that, that does sound spicy. It's pretty exciting. Oh, I want to say, by the way, uh, happy Passover to everybody. And today will be the L.A. premiere and only screening of The Case of the Vanishing Gods. But I'll be in Chicago for the Chicago premiere hmm. at the Music Box on April 30th. So everybody come. Wow. Okay, I'll put that in my calendar. All right. All right, Jeffrey. Thank, Thank you, you Sebastian. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll probably uh, introduce you again next week. Oh, hey, what should I do in the meantime? Um, stay beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I will. All right. Bye. All right. Ciao. <sighs> All right. So not only am I stealing Chuck's lines, uh, but I'm also broadcasting live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. Uh, now let's see what else we got here in terms of uh, questions from hell. Uh, the question from hell is still what you got going on inside of you right now. What you got going on inside of you right now. Um, Neil C. says, uh, withering away of the state of my body. And I already read this. Jeez. Um, and Edison K. says, red meat, sweets, and the occasional vegetable. Uh, yeah, it's good when you have the occasional veg vegetable inside of you instead of uh, being a vegetable, I guess. Um, <laughs> wait, we didn't, didn't we have one on the email store? We didn't have one on the email store. I'm not sure if that has been read, though. Anyway, so, um, yeah, the winner of this week's question from hell, I, well, in my uh, uh, usurped dictatorial power that I have wrested from Chuck's, um, uh, 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 incapacitated, not cold, dead, uh, please no, hand, um, by the power vested in me, I, uh, declare this week's winner from, for the question from hell as, wait, where was it? Ed F., who, uh, wrote on uh, the question from hell what you got going on inside of you right now more damaged organs than a world server repair shop that was uh yeah that's that's it uh congratulations ed we will be in touch um yeah and this week's uh, this week's this concludes this week uh in limbo we will be back with more limbo maybe even purgatory who knows next week uh, with more staff picks, more staff axes, uh, a brand new rotten history, a brand new moment of truth, and of course, a brand new question from hell with equally brand new answers. Thanks go out to all my co-producers uh, who keep the show going, even if the dear captain of the ship is, as I said, incapacitated, so that we can keep sailing on on these infernal waters of late-stage capitalism. And with that, I will not, indeed, steal another one of Chuck's lines, shticks, and so on and so forth. Uh, and simply wish all of you, all listening, be it live at thisisl.com, or as a podcast, wherever, whenever, um, whatever you're doing, uh, a good and bountiful Easter weekend, or, as uh, Jeff said, uh, hinted at, reminded me, a good Passover weekend, 
or whatever else religious or non-religious celebration you do or do not engage in. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell raid. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.